platform for an in-depth look in economic matters with leaders and decision makers. This is BizTalk. As the world's second largest civil aviation market, China's fleet of commercial aircraft is expanding rapidly, with an increasing number of airlines operating both domestically and internationally. This expansion translates into a surge in the need for comprehensive and efficient aircraft management throughout their entire life cycle. Aviation powerhouse Airbus has officially inaugurated its aircraft life cycle service center in the bustling city of Chengdu, Sichuan province. This pioneering one-stop service center is designed to provide a comprehensive suite of solutions for the full life cycle management of Airbus aircraft from entry into service through to retirement, the first of its kind in China. The facility spans a massive area of 717,000 square meters with the capacity to handle up to 125 aircraft. As part of its ambitious future plans, this center will not only cater to routine checks and overhauls, but also focus on recycling high-value components, a testament to Airbus's commitment to sustainability and eco-efficiency. With this strategic move, Airbus is reinforcing its partnership with China, setting new standards in aviation services. We sat down with Philip Moon, Executive Vice President of Airbus, who shared insights on how this pioneering center will revolutionize aircraft life cycle management and further elevate the synergy between Airbus and China's dynamic aviation landscape. Mr. Man, it's great to have you with us on CGTN. My pleasure. So congratulations that the new Life Cycle Service Center will commence operations soon. Tell us how you see the significance of this project. We see the life cycle management of aircraft to contribute to this uh, sustainability ambition that we have. In Airbus, we perform research and development, we develop aircraft, we manufacture aircraft, we support them. And then when it comes to the uh, end of life of the product, uh, we were thinking that it was uh, uh, providing value to the market to dismantle the uh, aircraft in a sustainable way, in a green way, because of course we want the uh, uh, air transport to be uh, as clean as possible. So uh, that was for sure our objectives. We capitalized on some experience that we have in Europe, uh, thanks to our partner uh, Tarkmark uh, Aerosave. And uh, this is why we decided to come here in Chengdu, uh, together with Chengdu City, Tarmac Aerosave, and, and Airbus to put together our know-how and to be able to uh, deliver this uh, green dismantling on top of some other services, like parking, storage of aircraft, the associated maintenance, and also the ability to upgrade the aircraft between two leases, for example. And uh, this is what uh, Airbus uh, Lifecycle Service Center will provide. In fact, when we're looking at the growth of uh, uh, air traffic, uh, for sure, China is playing, uh, is playing a big role uh, and, and it represents more as 20 to 25 percent of the number of aircraft we're selling. Mm. Uh, and when it comes to services, I mean, it's even, uh, there is an acceleration in the services market in the next 20 years. Uh, the revenue of uh, aftermarket uh, would uh, triple in the next 20 years. So, of course, that represents an opportunity to bring our know-how around mm. our own product uh, and to be able to support our customers first, but also to bring higher level of safety, higher level of a digital way to support the aircraft, like predictive maintenance, for example, 
and uh, some other uh, dimensions like this uh, uh, end-of-life management that we would provide through uh, Airbus Lifecycle Services Center. Mm -hmm. How is China's commitment to sustainable development affect uh, the cooperation outlook with Airbus? In fact, China's commitment in terms of uh, air transport would be to be uh, have to reach net zero emission mm. by uh, 2050, and that's very consistent with what the uh, objectives of everybody in the, in, in, the, uh, in the world. We are promoter, of course, to keep our what we call the license to operate because we need to have green air transport if we want to be able to further develop the the transport, which is mainly driven of economical growth of some country uh, and that, that's, that's really uh, very much important. So looking to, uh, looking to uh, of course, uh, China, uh, we see that the, the growth of traffic would probably be something like 5.3% per year for the next 20 years mm. when uh, it, it to be compared to 3.6% uh, in the rest of the world. So this acceleration is very important and we see that also China is recovering from the uh, COVID pandemic and uh, in terms of domestic traffic today the traffic is higher than what it was in 2019 and we think that by the end of 2024 the international traffic uh, will be probably 80% of what it was in 2019 mm -hmm. and uh, some of the measures being taken by the uh, government are uh, of course helping. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm thinking about the, the free visa yeah. which is of course uh, uh, facilitating uh, transport and access to uh, foreigners to uh, to China. So I think uh, all in all, uh, when we combine everything, traffic growth, uh, usage of sustainable aviation fuel, uh, mm. we were just discussing with uh, uh, the uh, uh, Sichuan governor mm. about the opportunity to develop some uh, uh, sustainable aviation fuel based on the uh, cooked oil. Mm. Uh, and this is something that if you combine usage of sustainable aviation fuel, the replacement of the old aircraft by new technology aircraft and then together with some uh, disruptive technology like for example usage of hydrogen for some future aircraft. This is how we are expecting that in China but in the rest of the world will be able to have this uh, net zero emission and to reach this net zero emission ambition. Mm -hmm. Well, there is a growing emphasis on supply chain resilience, especially amid global uncertainties and geopolitical tensions. How do you see the uh, supply chain resilience in China? So I think that, uh, first of all, I mean, uh, China decided to go for high quality in terms of the uh, uh, aeronautical supply chain. I think that uh, we, Airbus, have a strategy with the local for local uh, supply to our uh, Airbus product. Uh, to support mainly uh, our uh, Tianjin final assembly line, mm -hmm. uh, and this is something which is uh, which is important to us. When I'm looking to the the rest of the uh, the rest of the world, uh, for sure, post pandemic, I think that uh, everybody is experiencing the same difficulty. So, sourcing raw materials, uh, aluminium, titanium, for example, mm -hmm. uh, there were uh, electronic ships uh, shortage. So. Uh, and a lot had to do with the lack of anticipation and the people not believing that traffic would be back and that airline would need some more aircraft. So I think now everybody understood that traffic is back. Uh, that's why we're sharing our uh, global market forecast uh, for all the supply chain to be aligned with our own objectives. And I think that's another way. The last topic was probably the access to uh, uh, talent pool. 
mm. so to be able to uh, hire people to train them and this mm. is something also where some people left the industry uh, in western world for example and that uh, we have now to hire some more junior people train them and that's true for our bus that's true for our supplier uh, but that's a good way that's an investment for the future and uh, we still feel the passion of young generation mm. for uh, uh, to be uh, to belong to the uh, air transport and aviation family. From Liangjiahe, a village on the barren lowest plateau in northwest China, to Zhongnanhai, the center of China's top leadership in Beijing, Xi Jinping has served in various posts at different levels of the government across China starting in his early years as a junior village official to governing as China's top leader. What's he like as an individual and as a leader? How have his work experiences from earlier decades been influencing his leadership as the national leader? What are some of the core principles that have guided his decisions and actions? The Stories of Xi Jinping podcast series shares the life and work experiences of Xi Jinping and explores the formation of his governing principles, philosophy, beliefs, among others. Getting to know Xi's thoughts on national governance and how his leadership took shape may help you better understand China's path, governance and principles. You can follow the Stories of Xi Jinping podcast series on all major podcast platforms. Well, Chinese Premier visited Europe in January this year, his first official uh, visit outside uh, the country. Uh, one of his key messages is that China should be viewed as an opportunity rather than a risk. How do you perceive China's business environment and investment outlook? In fact, uh, for uh, our aviation business, I mean, China for sure is the big market. So uh, China is uh, not only an opportunity, it's a given. I mean, we're already a, a partner of uh, China in terms of further developing aviation here. Uh, we invested a lot. I mean, uh, of course, our final assembly line in Tianjin is one of the most visible uh, 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 assets that we're having here. We're going to have a second final assembly line over there. But we're also uh, having our own uh, research and development center. Uh, we invested in uh, Airbus Technical AUG Center uh, in Beijing. Uh, and we have a, a, a lot of initiatives like for example, further moving some inventory of spare parts here in China to better support the uh, uh, operation of our uh, Chinese uh, operators. So overall, that's why I'm saying that uh, it's a given that China is, uh, is an important market and that uh, the partnership we're having with the airlines, uh, we're here in, in Chengdu, I mean, uh, and mm -hmm. I can tell you that they need our support uh, to be uh, uh, um, an efficient and profitable airline. China is committed to uh, further opening up its market and this year also marks the 60th anniversary of China-France diplomatic ties. How do you perceive uh, the opportunities to further enhance business and economic cooperation and uh, what sectors do you see the biggest opportunities? Well, I would prefer some other experts to uh, share with you their, their view on the, on the developments mm. uh, when it comes to aviation. Uh, I think that uh, you understood that uh, our, our strategy is really to, to have more vertical integration in China, mm. so to be able to uh, manufacture locally what we would need to uh, uh, finally assemble our aircraft. Mm. And that's the same for services where we think that uh, there is a, a very robust uh, uh, aviation footprint 
in, uh, in China and here in Chengdu, for example. And this is what we want to leverage to further develop our services activity in line with the projection I was sharing with you earlier. Mm -hmm. well, China is also a big player in the digital economy. And uh, how, how is Airbus leveraging uh, the digital technology to further enhance passenger experiences and service quality? We have two, uh, two different uh, areas where we try to leverage digital experience. One has to do with the uh, a more connected aircraft. So here it's really to provide agnostic capacity to connect yourself on the various satellite constellations mm -hmm. so to get access to any kind of information at any time and then to use a Wi-Fi technology on board the aircraft for each and every passengers to, uh, this is what we call the bring your own device on board instead of having some very heavy video uh, monitors in the cabin you can come with your own monitor and then get the same passenger experience that what you get at home. So that's one connected aircraft. On the other side, um, the aircraft are equipped with a lot of sensors. They can mm. send real time their information about the behavior of the various system. Mm. And this is helping us to be more uh, uh, predictive in terms of the behavior of the system. And the benefit for the passengers is that we can anticipate on the failure on any system and avoid any kind of uh, delay or cancellation in a very proactive mode, so we can uh, uh, really anticipate on an aircraft to fail in, let's say, in the next 10 flights. So uh, before that period of time, we prepare the spare parts, we prepare the procedures, and the mechanics can fix the issue before it's happening. Mm -hmm. And that's where uh, I think uh, we combine the two dimensions of digital, and this is uh, what will bring a lot of value to the air transport overall. Well, and talking about innovation, what other uh, strategies or technologies is Airbus uh, em employing uh, to uh, empower the future of innovation of the air aviation industry? I think there is uh, one very uh, significant path which has to do with uh, leveraging hydrogen. Hydrogen is the real uh, uh, zero emission mm. uh, combustor. So, uh, this is something that uh, where we are developing uh, technology bricks today uh, to have uh, hydrogen storage on an aircraft, having then fuel cell, being able to get electricity out of it. And then this is something that we could use in more electrical engines, or we could use hydrogen also to be burnt in some uh, modified uh, uh, engines and where you modify the combustion chamber and suddenly you can burn hydrogen and this is something that is just emitting water. Mm. And so, uh, uh, of course, that's a major contribution. The rest of it, in terms of reducing our uh, emissions, has to do with uh, the uh, aerodynamics behavior, where you can reduce the drag, reduce the, the fuel consumptions. And that's something which is another area where we're having a, a careful look uh, with some kind of a active, uh, active wing behavior. Um, and the other dimension is much more with our engine partners, mm. where uh, you, you cannot have a next generation aircraft without a next generation engine, and they are working on disruptive technology to further reduce significantly the, uh, the engine consumption. One of the initiatives is the kind of open fan, mm. uh, which would, uh, of course, improve further the uh, fuel consumption. Mm -hmm. 2023 is a good year for Airbus, and what is ALO for 2024? You know, we are we're still, uh, our story has to do with uh, ramping up our production. Mm -hmm. uh, so we want uh, by 2026 to, read, to, rate, uh, to reach a rate of uh, 75 
320 uh, family members per month, uh, so which is uh, significantly higher than what we're experiencing uh, before COVID. We're doing the same on the uh, 8220, where today we're at a rate 7 per month. We want to go to uh, rates 14. And we see also the international market recovering. So from uh, rate 6 on the 350, uh, we want to go to uh, rate 10, and this is what we publicly announced. And from a rate three to a rate four on the A330. So overall, I mean, this is a growth story. Mm -hmm. And that's why the question regarding the resilience of the supply chain mm -hmm. uh, is so important to us. And that's why we're working so much upfront with our partners mm -hmm. to be sure that we are together securing uh, the future of this uh, uh, production ramp up. Well, thank you so much for sharing with us. It was a pleasure. Thank you very much. Coming up next, as we navigate the complex landscape of global investment, China's economic trajectory and its investment climate continue to draw significant interest from investors worldwide. We sat down with Joe Nai, chairman of McKinsey China. He offered valuable insights uncovering the growth opportunities that lie ahead in the world's second largest economy. Stay tuned. With a history of 5,000 years, it's no surprise that China has created a fabulous treasury of folk tales. Once a year, on the seventh day of the seventh month, all the magpies fly up to heaven and form a bridge. So many amazing worlds to discover. I want a new palace, said King Mu of Zhou one day. Chinese folk tales retold for audiences today. Will, will you marry me? He asked. And with little hesitation, she said, <laughs> Yes! 5,000 years of amazing Chinese folk tales. My father must not go to war. Someone must take his place. You'll find Chinese Folk Tales Season 3, wherever you discover your favorite podcasts. Well, Joe, thank you so much for joining us. How is China's economic outlook and investment opportunities perceived by participants? I think, you know, if you look at the top line, you know, global economy growing at 2.5%, most developed economies growing at 1.5%. And you look at the entrepreneurs in China right now, what they're doing, whether it's around um, the new frontiers of, um, you know, sustainability, if you look at you know, electric vehicles, batteries, you know, uh, solar, wind, right? Look at all these areas. China is the forefront of it. If you look at uh, manufacturing, um, all the, um, the, the latest, you know, manufacturing on the technology side, I think the Chinese companies have been the most competitive in the world. Uh, the value for money equation uh, for Chinese manufacturers have never been higher. Um, and I look at um, all the areas we were talking about these days, right? Technology, innovation, um, you see a lot of that going from China. So you look at the big themes in the world, even AI, right? I think that Chinese companies have been actually been very, very digital enabled, very data driven, and has been actually investing in AI for a while, right? So if you bring this all together, all the areas where people are excited about, if you look at China, it's pretty well positioned, right? So we don't have a lack of excitement. Right. The question is, how do these excitement areas can become more pervasive 
across the industry, across you know, the, the, in China, right? I think that's where maybe we need to do some work, right? You gotta make sure that all these excitement and growth areas is gonna be wider adopted by more companies, enjoyed by both the coastal areas, but also in the second and third tier cities, right? By the leading companies as well as a lot, you know, the, the broader masses. I think the distribution is an area that we should be more concerned about. You know, in terms of policy, I think, you know, uh, anything that we can do to boost consumer sentiment, to boost con consumption and demand, mm -hmm. I think will be good for everyone. Yeah? Mm -hmm. But I think in the um, areas of where Chinese companies are competing, you know, I actually think that the biggest boost will come from how the Chinese companies can actually look into building markets outside of China. Right? One of the things that I think you see this year is that a lot of Chinese companies are ultra competitive and ultra, um, in some ways, uh, doing very well within China. But what they also see is that the global market is actually bigger, right? We have seen recently whether it's, you know, Pinduoduo success in the US or whether it is the electric vehicle success in emerging markets, right? The rest of the world actually uh, would love to see these Chinese products that has good value for money, are very competitive, are very innovative, and in some ways, to be honest, in the inflationary uh, environment, um, China can actually really help to put a lid on inflation because our products are gonna be very price competitive and can really help the consumers. So anything that we can do to help Chinese companies become more competitive and more accepted globally, I think it's probably one of the best boosts that the government can help with the Chinese companies. China should be viewed as an opportunity instead of a risk. How was that received? I think the Chinese market, of course, right, is an opportunity uh, for multinationals. I think as far as the last 20 years is concerned, if you look at the top you know, 50 to 100 top multinationals, their share um, of the Chinese share of the global market is between 15 to 50%, right? So there is no other market that can replace the Chinese market. I think the anxiety of the multinationals is going to be, um, they have actually enjoyed um, the Chinese market and success in there for the last 20 years. The question is, um, what am I gonna do for the next 10 years? And I think the question for them is one of competitiveness. It's one of how do I continue my success in China? Um, and it's not, I think, a geopolitical one. I think it is a, competitive one. And I think that for multinationals, like for every single Chinese companies, you have to continue to get better because the Chinese market is a relentless competitive market, as we all know. So I think that multinationals, like every single Chinese company, just need to fight uh, for the place at the table. Nothing is guaranteed in China. Everything needs to be competed for. And that's the name of the game. You, know, you gotta compete and you gotta have the right product, right price point, right proposition and continue to evolve, right? And that's really the, the I think, the, the spirit of what multinationals need to do to be successful in China. Mm -hmm. Maybe competition from domestic players as well. Competition for everyone, other multinationals, domestic players, um, Chinese consumers who are experimenting with many things out there. So I think that you are working with a population that, as the Premier said, is a huge opportunity, but it's also a very, it's, it's a tough, greater, right? The Chinese consumers are very um, smart and very, you know, willing to try different things and, you know, they look at the prices, right? It is a tough market, so we just have to also, you know, get, get better.
To what extent do you believe that the WEF can help with this trust deficit and to foster cooperation, especially in technology? To be honest, I think building the connections, um, I think it's very important. Mm -hmm. I think during the last few years, especially during COVID, right, I felt that it was very difficult, right, for travel, it's very difficult for face-to-face -face interaction. Uh, of course, we were doing a lot by remote, but I think nothing replaces the personal trust that we build and a little bit of the um, relationships, right, that are important. So I think good, good platform, good starting point for that conversation. But of course, this is just a few days here in the mountains, right? We just discuss things and then we leave. Um, I think the work really begins when we go back to our homes and continue the conversation. How do we continue the dialogue? I was very pleased to see a very big Chinese delegation. The world needs China to be engaged and the world really welcomes, um, I think, China to be um, a part of this. And I think that um, I thought that it was a very, very good and welcome speech. I thought that people appreciated it. And um, I think that that dialogue is only, only positive. So to what extent do you believe the WET can help with this trust deficit and to promote cooperation, especially in technology and digital cooperation? I think the trust with China, to be honest, in the last 30 years has always been there. I think that um, many, you know, I, I, I work with many multinationals uh, who have spent years, decades, building their business in China. They have deep relationships. To be honest, um, I think that there are many people around the world that has very deep relationships with China. And that relationship, to be honest, has not changed. I think what has changed is that in the last couple of years, there's been a few, you know, um, political discussions, there have been a few um, you know, other you know, forces at work that caused a little bit of a, you know, maybe some new questions around the future, maybe some questions around tech, maybe some questions around right, some of the areas that feels a little bit more sensitive. Um, but I think that fundamentally, a lot of people have spent a lot of time and effort uh, and years in building that trust with China. And I think that remains. Um, I see many, many good friends. Um, who are foreigners, who have spent many, many years in China. Um, and to me, um, that is enduring and that you know, is, has been constant. I think what we need to do is to double down. Right? I think as with any relationship, um, you have to keep working at it. Um, there are going to be ups and downs. Um, and sometimes it's one step forward, half a step back, but you're still moving forward. And I think that that is the spirit and the energy um, you know, and the engagement that you know, we would love to see continue throughout this year. Well, thank you for sharing with us. Okay, thank you. And that's all for this edition of BizTalk. Thanks for being with us. Until next time, bye for now. Dive into news like never before with Deep Dive, the podcast from CGTN Radio. Join our global reporters for captivating stories and thought-provoking conversations. Search Deep Dive on your favorite podcast platforms and get ready to dive in. Sideline Story brings you all things sports-related. The hottest topics, latest events, juiciest stories, all with a very personal take. Subscribe to Sideline Story Podcast for heated sports discussions covering events that are happening in China and around the world.